Welcome to Native Lights Podcast, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Leah Lem. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo. Thank you for joining us on our first podcast episode. Native Lights Podcast is about community stories. A lot of times when media covers Indigenous stories or issues, it can be kind of doom and gloomy. So we wanted to take a perspective of Indigenous people are very resilient, strong, self-determined, and we wanted that to come through in the stories uh, in this podcast. Yeah, and kind of like the title of our podcast, we wanted to shine a light on the good in our communities because there's a lot of good. Yeah, there's a lot of good things in the community. And, you know, it's not turning a blind eye to the hardships, to the issues, but entering into those with those positive attributes that Indigenous people have. And at the same time, we get to ask people what the media can do to better represent Native stories and issues. So first off, we should probably let you know who we are. Why don't you go first, Cole? First off, we're brother and sister, right? That's right. I remember when you were born. Yep, I'm the younger brother and the middle child. Yep, we also have a younger brother, Bryce, mm-hmm. who's amazing. And we're both Malak's band of uh, Ojibwe members. Yes, proud members of Malak's band of Ojibwe. We're both musicians. I've been playing guitar and singing for about a couple decades now. That's right. We've we've played together a little bit, too. Mm-hmm. I'm a songwriter and giant fan of Tori Amos. And we've both worked in media for quite a while now, over a decade at least. So now that you know a little about us, let's get to today's show. All the stories in this first episode of Native Lights are about purpose. The idea that we're all created to do something special. When you do it, you feel fulfilled and you're living your life to its utmost potential. And when you find that purpose, you find your joy because you know what you have to do. You have to do it. Early on, I somehow just knew that my gift was making people laugh. I know that for my people, this is a time of awakening. With that comes responsibility. What am I to do with my intelligence? Who was I created to be? We start with Rob Fairbanks, or you may know him as the Wiener Water Soup Man. And you're going to want to boil that wiener or wieners, whatever you prefer. And you're gonna boil it till you get that uh, soapy, bubbly looking stuff around there, like when you're in a jacuzzi with a bunch of you guys and there's bubbles and foam starts to come up to the surface. Then you know your wiener water is done. That's Rob Fairbanks for you. He's our very first person on our very first episode. And you know what? He lives with his purpose and has stuck to his dreams, as you will hear. Let's see, I first met Rob Fairbanks a couple of years ago now at an Indigenous People's Day concert. I did a little little vocal gig, but he was there and Auntie Beatrice was there and some poets were there. And <laughs> I just remember him acting as a newscaster, like a news host. And he put on this like... <laughs> yellow toupee. I think it was just like a piece of like... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was just a flap, basically. (laughs) Piece of like bear fur, just like fake fur or something. I can't remember. But he he was just like really into his performance and and I I really respected that. So, 
yeah, I, I didn't know him then, but I, I soon did and did not realize how popular he was, but he really is popular. Some of his stuff has gone viral and um, he's just all around really funny and really nice guy. When I first started the Red Report videos, I thought it was more or less for my friends would get it. You know, I thought, you know, everybody here in northern Minnesota will understand. But I had no idea that it was going to go viral and so far as it, as it has. Cool. Yeah, he's known in many parts, but is definitely a local treasure in northern Minnesota. And it's, it's just amazing. I mean, uh, every day I was like, somebody comes up to me and says, you know, can I take a picture with you? That even still blows me away that people want to take a picture with me, you know. And, and you know, I got little kids coming, hey, Wienerwater Soup Man, you know. Uh, to me, that's just the craziest thing to be known as the Wienerwater Soup Man. And <laughs> I'm like, it making my mother proud, you know. <laughs> and he really is making his mother proud. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of his story um, has to do with his mom, which is really touching. So let's listen to Rob Fairbanks. I'm Rob Fairbanks, a Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe member. Uh, I work here for the band. I do the heating and air conditioning. I'm also a comedian, uh, social media entertainer, and also known as the Leech Lake's favorite son. Uh, not that anybody voted me the favorite son, I just kind of took it upon myself to take that title. So, Comedy's always been like a big part of my life. I fell in love with it when I was younger. Uh, my grandfather would stay with us in and out. He would stay with different relatives, but our favorite thing would be on Sundays is they would do reruns of like Laurel and Hardy, Three Stooges, and we would sit there every weekend, you know, and watch these films. And that was like our bonding time. And I remember sitting there laughing with my grandpa, and, and it struck me because they were in black and white, and I'm like, Grandpa, you know, why are they in black and white? How come they're not in color? And he's like, well, these were filmed back in the 30s, you know, a long time ago. And, and so it just kind of blew me away that, you know, this was, these were made so long ago, and they were still funny. And that just intrigued me so much because I was always like, how did they know this would be funny? Right? So spending time with Rob Fairbanks really cracked me up and it got me thinking about like the importance of humor in our daily lives and how it brings us together. And I could totally relate to this because humor always seemed to manage to find a way into our house growing up. Right, Cole? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember actually thinking that our dad was a comedian. Like I thought that was his job. He's a funny guy. I remember being jealous for some reason because growing up, you know, friends would come over and they'd always want to talk to dad <laughs> because he was just always so funny. And not only that, he's, he's always been an awesome storyteller, right? Which is a big part of comedy, of course. Our mother and brother have always been pretty dang funny too. So yeah, humor has always been around our house. Rob Fairbanks posts these weather reports. You never know when they're going to pop up, but when they do, they're always a treat. So Rob had a January weather report that went viral about the polar vortex. Yeah, this is your uh, Leech Lake uh, weather report for today. Yeah, it's about 22 below. Oh, ah, that burns. Ooh, it just burns outside right now. Ooh. Yeah. You go outside. You better bundle up. Wrap up, yeah. Because you're... You really burn your old buckskin right off your jumpstick today, for sure. 
when we were younger, we didn't have much. It took us a while to have finally get cable. <laughs> and when we finally got cable, I, I remember my mom used to watch like stand-up comedy specials like Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy. And I remember sneaking, trying to watch these comedy specials because my mom would be like, you know, you're not supposed to watch these, you know, they're swearing and all that. And so I would sneak, I'd be in the hallway watching, you know, and then I would just bust out laughing and my mom would be like, hey, you're not supposed to be watching this, you know. Uh, I remember it was around the time when Eddie Murphy was coming out with Raw, you know, his, uh, his comedy special. And I wanted to watch that so bad that I begged my mom. So finally she said, you know, you're not supposed to watch this, but I'm going to let you. Because I guess she figured, I'm going to watch it anyways. We were watching Eddie Murphy and we're just sitting there laughing and it it occurred to me and I was like I was like, Man, you know, look at he's he's making this auditorium stadium full of people laugh, you know, and here he is, he's got me and my mom laughing here at home, you know, and, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I grew up in alcoholic, abusive family and humor was my way of coping. It helped me get through those hard times, you know. And also it helped me to you know, help my mom and my brothers and sisters when I would see them down, I would do something to make them laugh. One time sticks out with my mom. Uh, I remember uh, they had been partying uh, the night before and a big fight broke out. Uh, the next day, my mom was kind of just sitting in the living room and she had tears in her eyes and I, I could tell she was in deep thought about stuff and, and hurting. I wanted to do something. And so I went up to her, and, and when I was talking about it was one of Eddie Murphy's comedy specials, and he always talks about, like, you know, I got ice cream and you don't. You know, and my mom used to love that bit, and so I, and I knew that. She liked that part. And, you know, kids are having on. I have some ice cream. I have some ice cream. I have some ice cream. And I'm gonna eat it all. I'm gonna eat it all. I got ice cream and you don't. And she was just kind of like, you know, she just started smiling because, you know, it brought back that memory. And that's the power of humor. Yeah, so finding the humor in dark times. I can definitely remember times in my life where putting on some SNL or Tommy Boy with Chris Farley during sad times just kind of helped ease my mind. Absolutely. My go-to is The Office or The New Girl. And just something where you can, you know, take a step back and really uh, reframe your thoughts towards um, a bit more positive. It goes back to this resilience through humor and kind of bringing that positivity to tough times. I felt like the creator gave me this gift and it was my job to, you know, share it. But I didn't tell anybody. I didn't say anything to anybody. I kind of just kept it to myself because uh, I always had that fear that, you know, people would make fun of me or I always had my doubts, you know. I always thought that it was for somebody else or that's not realistic. So I, I was always af too afraid to say anything. I never voiced it to anybody, but, but I kept that dream. Now, Rob Fairbanks has over 100,000 followers on social media. Wow. But you know what? What I get from uh, the, our talk together is that really what matters is making people feel good. You know, the most powerful thing is when somebody says that they were going through a hard time and they watch one of my videos and then, you know, I made them laugh for, you know, a minute or whatever, you know, for a second or whatever. So what, what the creator wanted me to do, I'm doing it. So let lets me know I'm on the right path. 
It's really touching to hear Rob Fairbanks talk about his dream and how he kept it so close to himself. Um, Him being worried about sharing it and being made fun of um, is totally relatable. And it's incredible that even with all this worry, he knew that comedy was his purpose. It reminds me of a time I was participating in a language table um, with Uncle Larry, Amic Smallwood. And I was at a time in my life where I didn't really even know what I liked. (laughs) All I knew is I liked singing and I liked writing music. And, you know, I talked to Uncle Larry, you know, you got to give him a little tobacco and all this stuff. And, you know, he sat down with me generously. (laughs) And I asked him, what's the point? Because it seemed as though no matter what I did, I wasn't making enough of a difference. You know, there's social media influencers, there are famous people and, you know, politicians making big strides in society and scientists discovering stars and stuff. And, you know, how is what I'm doing significant at all? Mm-hmm. And he sat down and it was very serious. And he talked to me about being given a gift from the creator. And he asked me, well, what do you love to do? And I said, well, I love to sing. And he said, well, go do it then. <laughs> so it's um, it was almost like marching orders. <laughs> and he's like, you need to use your gift because there's somebody out there who needs to hear your voice. I never thought that there could be anybody who actually ever needed to hear my voice. But if we're given a gift, then it's meant to be passed along. And it's your responsibility to share it. It absolutely is. And, you know, on the flip side, don't waste your gift. Like, you're doing yourself and you're doing your community a disservice if you don't use it. You know me, Cole. I'm not at all religious type of person. Mm -hmm. Likewise. Yeah, and even though I might not follow every line of belief, that is one thing that I do believe. So that was kind of a turning point in allowing myself to take music, my own music, more seriously. And now you've released an album and played gigs around the state. Let's listen to one of your songs, Earth, from your album Ruins. By the way, I'm on this song too. They came down from their Grab me by my arms Handcuffed my children and my mothers Cut the throats of my fathers
awesome. I really like that one. We'll hear more of Leah's music later in the podcast. You're listening to the first episode of Native Lights Podcast, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem. So all the stories in this episode of Native Lights are about purpose, finding your purpose and sharing your gifts. So you may have heard about this prophecy, that this is the time of the seventh fire. I I really hadn't heard much about this prophecy before Mm. we started preparing for this episode. Yeah, me neither. Uh, But our producer, Melissa Townsend, uh, sat down with someone who does know. Hey, Melissa. Hey. So, Melissa, you sat down with Renee Grineau to learn more about this Seventh Fire prophecy. Yeah, so Renee Grineau is a teacher and an elder from Red Lake. She lives in Bemidji, Minnesota. Do you guys know her? I don't think so. I haven't met her personally. Yeah. So she leads trainings for different groups of people all around the state um, about uh, Anishinaabe culture and life ways. So she told me about the Seventh Fire prophecy and said I could talk about it kind of in the general public like this. <laughs> Gotta get permission. That's right. So here's what she says about the Seven Fire Prophecy. The Seven Fires Prophecies is a history, each of the fires representing a period of time. But it's not the history of Anishinaabe people, it's the history of colonization. It was foretold what was going to happen about these people that were going to come over here and uh, w- the destruction and death that they would bring So there were other prophecies made by Anishinaabe elders that foretold colonization and the genocide that was part of it. But the prophecy of the seventh fire says, starting like in the 1960s and 70s, this began a new time. The seventh fire is a time of awakening. It's a time of throwing off the various processes that oppress our intelligence, our spiritual understanding, and that's where we are right now. So with that awakening and understanding of the destruction that happened here within a very, very short period of time, then comes responsibility. So what am I to do with my intelligence? How, what am I to do with my understanding? How, you know, how do I address these different things? Who was I created to be? And yes, it's a very pivotal time in the unfolding of consciousness. We each individually have this responsibility to ask ourselves, what is our role in creating something new? Kind of like what you were talking about, Leah, before, about like going to Uncle Larry and saying, what's the point? Like, where do I fit? You know? Yeah. I'm curious about this pivotal time. Like, when did it start? Yeah. Well, she says that it started in the late 60s, early 70s. And that's kind of the thing. It coincides with the end of the termination period. That's when the federal government was actually trying to get rid of tribal recognition. And it started this time that historians call the era of self-determination for tribal communities. And that shift didn't happen on its own. What many call the Red Power Movement had a huge impact in that shift. So if the Seventh Fire Prophecy is for everybody, if it's a a new era for everybody, how do people not get left behind? Mm -hmm. When I I say left behind, I mean still in the mindset of oppressing others. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think that this elder that I talked to, Jody Bolio, actually has a lot to say about that. She was part of the high-profile occupations with AIM and Indians from every tribe. 
she says that it's not like um, a tidal wave that carries everybody on the beach with it, you know? It's like a very slow-growing movement. But every time there's a native-led movement around something and allies join in, it's like it builds a little bit more. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's kind of what she gets at. All right. Cool. So these these movements had like a ripple effect on not only native communities, but surrounding white communities. That makes sense, and I can't wait to hear what she has to say. Yeah, well, she came over to my house in South Minneapolis for a visit. And here we go. Okay. Here's my mic. I'm just going to follow you around. I'm aiming for the corner of your mouth, just so you... Okay. <laughs> you feel okay? Yeah. Because <laughs> you can edit it. Totally. Yeah. All right. So you can stop. So if I stutter and... Swear. Oh, I don't want to swear. Okay. <laughs> I'll try to make it... E- I'll go easy on you. I first met Jody Bolio a few years ago when we sat down to talk about some of her work in Bemidji. And right away, I noticed her socks. <laughs> they were like these fancy socks with writing on them. And each foot said, stay away from ass. I was like, yes. So I was eager to talk with her again. And this time we had a visit in my house in Minneapolis. Well, how about you just start with um, introducing yourself however you want to. Makadewi Gabawik Ikwe, black standing woman from Miskwagamiwi Zaga Eganing in Donjiba, Red Lake. My dode, my clan is bear. Is that cool? <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> oh God. See, I'm already having you edit. <laughs> chop, chop. Um. Where my mind is going, and I want to respect where your mind is going, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of your energy in your life has gone towards fighting, protesting. Depends on the way, I guess you could look at it as a, a fight. If you go through your life like a fight, it's like, that's not living. So I see it as being resilient and Living up to my name, which part of it is standing, black standing woman. I'll never kneel. Oh, wait a minute, I will kneel. <laughs> no, in the sense that what's going on with Black Lives Matter and, you know, the police brutality and, you know, AIM got started by police brutality and things like that, but I'm way off board now. But Tell me more about your family. Who was, um, who was influential in your life? My grandmother, my mother, and my uncle. When I was growing up on North Side, and people would say to be mean when you know we kids got into squabbles, they'd say, "Go back to the reservation where you belong." And my mother instilled the strength because I would tell her how, that made me feel, you know, like. Wow, am I supposed to feel bad about that? And she would say, be proud of who you are. You know who you are, and you know where you come from. And those are the two basic things absolutely is important and critical. Um, My uncle was a long-term sovereignty warrior, and he instilled in me the fight. Not the fight, remember, I didn't like that, but the strength, the strength to... Um, know our rights, assert our rights, or we'll lose our rights. 
he warned me about certain things, you know, with this government, what it we're up against. And then my grandmother told me when I was going to school at UC Davis, whatever you do, my girl, never become a houseplant. This was back in the early 70s, prior to feminism. Yeah, so those three people, as well as my sisters and brothers, you know, because in the Indian way, we tease a lot. And I remember my one sister, the one a couple years older than me, would tease a hell out of me. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, unrelenting tease. Jody tells me about this one time she was asking for the salt shaker at the dinner table. And her older sister, the one who teased her all the time, grabbed the salt shaker and passed it to everyone else at the table. Oh, you want the salt shaker, she said. But I contribute having the strength to that teasing because I could withstand something that kind of like got under my skin. Judy knew she was strong and smart, but there were times in her life as a young adult where her ability to stand up surprised even her. In the late 60s, Jody left Minnesota for college in California. That's where she became part of some of the most high-profile events in the Red Power movement in the late 60s and early 70s. Jody was part of a group who named themselves Indians of All Tribes. They took over Alcatraz Island in California's San Francisco Bay in November of 1969. Richard Oakes was part of the group, and he often spoke to the media. Hi, I have a proclamation I'd like to read you. We, uh, the Native Americans, reclaim this land known as Alcatraz Island in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. <clears throat> we wish to be fair and honorable in our dealings with the Caucasian inhabitants of this land and hereby offer the following treaty. We will purchase said Alcatraz Island for $24 in glass beads and red cloth, a precedent set by the white man's purchase of a similar island about 300 years ago. Indians of all tribes created educational programming and systems for sharing food and shelter. It lasted for 19 months before the Coast Guard took back the island. But many agree the occupation of Alcatraz had a huge impact on federal tribal law. Alcatraz is um, attributed as the end of termination where the government tried to abrogate the treaties and antitrust responsibility through the treaties that they were obligated to uphold. Jody says they took the lessons they learned from Alcatraz to other places. When I got to Alcatraz, when I got the chance to assert our treaty rights, I found what we need to know in order to move our people forward. She was part of a group who took over the Pitt River Camp on June 5, 1970. It was three and a half million acres of land used as a vacation spot by employees of the Pacific Gas and Electric Company. The group occupied the camp partly because PG&E diverted water from the Pitt River tribal lands and didn't pay the tribe for it, and also because the tribe claimed the camp land was illegally seized from them in the late 1800s. This is archival tape of a PG&E representative talking about the first day of the occupation. Uh, About 3 o'clock this morning, uh, two of our families were already vacationing up there, uh, we woke up uh, to some noise, and at this point, uh, Richard Oakes uh, informed them that uh, they had nothing to worry about, don't be alarmed, they're not going to do any damage, uh, that this was merely a political move on their part. It was a forceful but peaceful occupation. The group never targeted privately held land, only corporate and federal lands that they wanted back. Fighting is like uh, 
isn't the way of our people. It's not the way of our people. Our people were always, in my mind, a peaceful people, a spiritually connected and um, deeply rooted people in the earth. You know, people of privilege might see it as being um, hostile, but to me it's survival and it's resiliency. Also in 1970, Jody was part of a group who occupied an army communications base near Davis, California. They demanded the vacant base become a college for American Indian and Latinx culture, tradition, and lifeways. This is archival footage from the ceremony celebrating the agreement to establish the school they had demanded. The peace pipe and land deed ceremony marked only the beginning of celebrations here. Indian powwows and Chicano fiestas were scheduled throughout the evening. Perhaps the overall mood here can best be summed up by a quote from Victor Hugo, which is found at the bottom of the ceremonial program. It reads, nothing can withstand the force of an idea whose time has come. In 1973, Jody was at the occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota. It was an arms standoff. AIM and others used guns to defend their position against the U.S. government. First of all, we were coming from California, right around Salt Lake halfway. They said, no more support is needed at Wounded Knee if you're heading that way, you know, on national radio or whatever. They try to discourage us. We say, hey, we're halfway, we're going all the way. On February the 27th, 1973, Russell Means and around 300 Lakota seize the village of Wounded Knee at gunpoint. The authorities bring in armored personnel carriers, helicopters and phantom jets. Soon 250 law enforcers surround the village, armed with mortars, machine guns and M16 rifles. The residents of Wounded Knee became Ames hostages. But when two U.S. senators negotiated their release, the hostages refused to go. AIM leader Russell Means recounted the story. Those two senators looked at it. They didn't want to leave. <laughs> we'll give you an armed escort out of here. You're all right. You'll be safe. No, we don't want to leave. It's your fault. We're, we're here. <laughs> your fault. These Indians are here. If you took care of business, blah, 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 man. They start condemning the senators. It was beautiful. It was fantastic, man. The days are relatively peaceful. The nights explode with exchanges of gunfire. We went the day that the APCs were pulled back so you could just drive, you didn't have to walk in. And right away we were assigned duties, and um, I was assigned to the guard shack along with the Lakota woman that I was with and an Alaskan woman that I was with that I came from California with. And um, we were getting up at 5 in the morning, going over to the guard shack and manning the business of the day. And then one day, um, there is a trailer house a little ways away, and I said, I think I'll go over there and see if I can get us any breakfast. So I went over there, and the AIM head guys were over there, and there was also a news reporter. And I went in just like I owned the place because we did. And we wa I walked back through the kitchen, and I got like maybe three pancakes, put it on a plate, and was walking out. And I heard that news guy say, well, is there anything that you want to get to the outside? I said, yeah, tell him that we're starving in here and we need food. He said, well, it doesn't look like it. I said, these three pancakes are going for six people back at the guard shack. And I was surprised that I was able to stand up for myself. And I didn't need any AIM guy to be standing there and 
you know. So I think that's an important part. In a final leaving ceremony, tribute is paid to those killed in the 1890 massacre. Although the siege has collapsed, Wounded Knee is seen as a turning point in Native American history. The big payoff was self-dignity and self-respect. What the experience that I had um, kind of laid out my purpose in life, in a sense, and that when you have that experience, it's really deeply affecting your whole being. You're no longer oppressed. You're no longer um, going to settle for less than what you know to be right and what you know to be the truth. Jody says she's been guided by her strong belief in a higher power and a belief that each person has a purpose in life. And this was hers. And I think that purpose is to continue to speak our truth and continue to use those experiences to realize that we each have a purpose in life. And when you find that purpose, it's not a fight. You find your joy because you know what you have to do. You have to do it, you know. And um, I think that every generation needs to have that kind of um, experience in order for us to evolve into a better way of being as the human race. You know, when you're talking about the purpose... I think about some of the things that, like, swallow people whole, like the foster care system and addiction. And when I listen to you, it sounds like these are just things that get in your way and you have to move them to find your calling. Is that what you think? That's a tough question because um, all I can say is... uh, that people have their own life path. You, if you've been mistreated when you were younger and you don't have a vision of it being better, an idea in your mind about this happened to me, I won't let it happen if I have kids, that self-talk and that self-actualization and that dream and that vision is important part and always has been an important part of our people's life. You know, it's, it's not easy, but it can be done. So how do you think about the current Native-led movements like the water protectors at Standing Rock and the people who fight the pipelines? Oh, my goodness. It's really a, a blessing, and I um, I wish I could have went to Standing Rock, but my role right now is with my grandchildren, and I leave it up to the you know, people who can make it there to do whatever is necessary. I think Standing Rock needs to be recognized as the place where people have come together, all races of man. We're all coming together, coalescing around, saving the earth and saving the water and um, going against corporate America. So everybody's getting on board, and that's great, you know. It can't be hidden no more. Woohoo! She answered a lot of questions that I had about how the movement includes everybody. 
And I feel like my impression of what she says, it's like, it's building, it's building, it's building, it's building. Every generation, it's building. And it seems really significant to me that people are coming to Indian country. Like, I really am talking from um, just my perspective and thoughts, but uh, a lot of traditions and ways around treating the earth have been so lost by the majority, right? But I feel like they're finding indigenous knowledge so relevant now with all this changes in the environment and (laughs) things that we're doing to the earth that it's like, hey, check out Indian country and what they're doing, the traditions and mindset and life ways that they're working in. We We got this knowledge. That's what I see. It's a crazy concept, treating the earth with respect, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Mm. I just hope that people aren't, like, you know, non-natives aren't like, oh, wow, this native thing is so cool, and then run away with it, instead of, like, letting native people lead the movement. You know what I mean? Because you really lose something in the translation, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think that's what, what this is showing, what she's showing is these native-led movements that are, like, really effective. The thing I really love about her, too, is that, so she's a grandma. She didn't get to go to Standing Rock, right, because she's home taking care of her grandkids. Her, her daughter is a nurse and works with crazy hours. And, like, now this is her purpose, right? Like, she doesn't always have to be on the front line. She didn't, she's, she's been flexible about the role she can play, you know what I mean, in this movement. And I, I don't know, I just think that's, that's something I aspire to, is that kind of flexibility. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. There's a time for her being a warrior woman and I mean she still is doing you know this work with her grandchildren now too so yeah and I uh, I loved what you said about not becoming a houseplant because it's very easy to just get caught in the daily routine and just go to your job come back home and do that sort of thing but from her story she's always pushed herself to you know fight for native causes and I I personally uh, thank her for all that she's done and what she continues to do And here we are at the end of our very first episode. Wow, we made it. Of Native Lights Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Mi We want to thank Rob Fairbanks, Renee Grinnell, and Jody Bolio for sharing their gifts with us today. It was great. Absolutely. We also want to thank our engineer, Justice Sanchez, our project manager, Aaron Warhol, producers, Lori Stern, and Melissa Townsend. Cole and I created all the music for this episode. What do we got going on in the next episode? Yeah, in the next episode, I'm really excited. Um, We talk with a jazz guitarist and a writer, and it's all about artistry and identity. What I've discovered in my search for myself, going forward and finding my path, the reasons on how you got to be a certain way They're important, but they're not as important as moving forward. I'm Leo Lam. And I'm Cole Primo. See you next time. Gigawabamin. Peace out. (laughs) Gigawabamin, everyone. So we mentioned that we'd feature some of Leah's music again, and we're going to end with her song, Earth, to close out the podcast episode. Grab me by
Native Lights Podcast, where Indigenous voices shine, is a production of Minnesota Native News and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. Native Lights Podcast is made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and the citizens of Minnesota.